Hi friends and welcome to Robcast 58. This is part five of a series called Politics and Guns. And uh, you know what? I'm having so much fun doing this series. We're going to keep going. So there will be a part six. Maybe I'll wrap it up at part six and then maybe somewhere down the road there'll be a part seven. Um, but this is part five and this one is called The Question at the Heart of Empire. And uh, so here's what I want to do. Uh, in the last episode, I talked about the United States of America. I talked about weapons, talked about military bases. Uh, I, I want to give some history to the whole issue of weapons and guns and politics. And what I want to do is tell you an ancient story from the scriptures. Because what's really interesting is that there's a, the Bible has a lot to say about weapons. The Bible has a lot to say about the accumulation of power and money and its relation to weapons. Um, it's actually, in some senses, a recurring theme throughout the scriptures. And for many people, what's interesting is they haven't heard this before. Um, oftentimes, of course, for many people, the Bible is simply uh, a story about how you can believe the right things and then go somewhere when you die. Um, but if you read the Bible carefully, you discover that it's much, much more profound and relevant than that. It actually speaks to some of the fundamental struggles of humanity in regards to governments, nations, weapons, people, uh, refugees, um, taxes. It, it, it's a book about the blood, sweat, toil of this world. And uh, so here's what I want to do. I'm going to tell you this story and walk you through it. And you may even have heard pieces of the story, but I want to show you some elements that perhaps you haven't. And I think it's one of the most, I actually think it's one of the most powerful moments in the entire scripture because of what it speaks to. And then from there, uh, we will, well, you know what, let me just get at it and let's see what happens, shall we? Okay, so book of 1 Kings chapter 10, relatively earlier in the Bible. Uh, there's a queen of Sheba and the queen of Sheba, and by the way, there's some fascinating sort of history around the queen of Sheba, but the queen of Sheba comes to the city of Jerusalem to visit the great King Solomon. And Solomon is wealthy, and Solomon is powerful, and Solomon has all sorts of officials and terraces on his palace and gardens, and Solomon has built a temple to God. And Solomon is considered as wise as they come. And so the story picks up, the Queen of Sheba has heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to, and the word for God here is the word Lord, which is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which we've talked about before on the Robcast. This particular word to speak to the God who is on the side of the oppressed, the God who liberates those who need saving, the God who always veers towards the downtrodden, the underdog, those who've got the boot of an oppressor on their neck. And so Queen of Sheba hears about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to this God. And so she comes to Jerusalem with a great caravan. And she meets with Solomon and she talks with him about all that she has on her mind. And Solomon, the scriptures say, answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. 
And so the queen of Sheba hears his wisdom. She sees his palace. She sees the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, the burnt offerings he makes at the temple, and she's overwhelmed. And she says to the king, man, the report that I've heard my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told to me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. And then she says, at the end of her speech to Solomon, she says, because of God's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. Now, these two words, justice and righteousness, in Hebrew, it's mishpah and tzedakah. These two words are loaded with significance. In the <coughs> Sorry about that. Whew. Um, these two words are loaded in Hebrew consciousness, justice and righteousness, everything in its right place, the poor being cared for, those who have been wronged having someone to argue their case. And so the queen of Sheba surveys Solomon's kingdom and his wealth and power and servants and temple and terraces and all of the people who are at his beck and call, and she says, I know why you've been given all this power. You have been given this power to use it to maintain justice and right living, right relationship for all the people in your kingdom, to look out for the well-being of everybody, especially those who struggle. How happy your people must be. It's as if she points out the thing that we all know deep in our bones. I know why you were given this. You were given this to help those who need it the most. You were given this power so that you would exercise this power on behalf of the powerless. You were given this wisdom so that you would give guidance to those who need it most. You feel this in your bones, correct? In 2015, headed into 2016, you have this sense when, when, when we are awake, when we are alive, when we are feeling the pulse of the divine, we, we, we have this awareness that we're here to give back, that what we've been given, we're here to offer back. Think about your moments of greatest joy. Many of those moments, I'm sure of it, were moments when you felt like you were giving back like you'd been given something, time, energy, passion, compassion, money, resources, connections, networks, whatever it is, you are given something and you give this, you have this chance to, to give it back and especially to give to those who need it the most. And so the Queen of Sheba looks around and says, I know why you have all this. You were given this in order that you would use this power and wealth and wisdom to look out for the well-being and the thriving of everybody. Now, these storytellers, these storytellers who gave us these scripture stories, they're often working at multiple levels. They've got an agenda. They want you to see something. So if you read the chapters before the rest of this chapter with the Queen of Sheba story and you read the chapter after it, you realize that the storyteller is trying to do something here. The storyteller wants you to see something about Solomon. So, Notice what the storyteller says. 
Here is the account of the forced labor King Solomon constricted to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, the terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Wait, 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 wait. What does the storyteller say? The storyteller tells you the Queen of Sheba story, but also the storyteller here wants you to know this is how Solomon built the temple and how he built his palace and the terraces and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer, which, what are those? We'll get to those in a second. Now, what's another word for forced labor? Exactly, slaves. Wait, what? What, what, what? Solomon built the temple for God using slave labor? Wait, wait, wait. Solomon is a Jewish king. And what do we know about the Jewish story? It comes out of this Exodus story, which was what? These Jewish people were slaves in Egypt. They were owned by Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. And Moses rises up to lead them out of slavery. And so a couple of generations later, what has happened? The former slaves, a couple generations later, are now building temples to the God who rescued them from slavery using slaves. Solomon's ancestors had been slaves in Egypt, right? I mean, that's where the story comes from. They were liberated from the Pharaoh who drove them in forced labor. They were freed from slavery. And the name of this God who freed them from slavery was Yahweh. And so now Solomon is using slaves to build a temple to honor Yahweh who rescued his people from slavery. Solomon has forgotten the story of his people. They were liberated from an oppressive empire and several generations later, they're building an empire that oppresses people. What does the storyteller want you to see? There's a new Pharaoh and his name is Solomon. Now, he says also that he was using slaves to build Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Do you know what Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer are? Military bases. Solomon is using slaves to build military bases. Why? Because when you're building an empire, when you're stacking things, when you are intoxicated with your own wealth, then you have to protect it. And then you have to spend more and more of a portion of your resources on your defense. And then it says that Solomon, uh, here we go, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. Now, why does the storyteller want you to know about chariot? A chariot was a tank of the day. Chariots and horses were basically like tanks and planes of this time period in history. The storyteller wants you to know that Solomon is accumulating weapons. 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. Are you kidding me? Do you see what the storyteller is doing here? The storyteller is essentially saying, because in Jewish consciousness at this time, when you said Egypt, what would they have thought of? Yes, Egypt. There 
the ones that oppressed us, the global military superpower, essentially, that oppressed our people and enslaved them, and then we were rescued from that. But now Solomon is getting horses from Egypt. There's a new oppressor on the scene, and it's Solomon. And then this line, and this is why the Bible is so interesting. Listen to this. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150 shekels of silver. Now, remember, all these details matter. This is a classic case of one of those verses that you just skip right over unless you were really, really paying attention. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also, here's the next line, exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and of the Arameans. Unbelievable! (laughs) You realize what the storyteller wants you to know. Solomon isn't just building military bases. Solomon isn't just accumulating tanks and planes, chariots and horses. Solomon has become an arms dealer. Solomon is buying and selling weapons. Now, if you're like, oh, no, no, come on, come on, that's a stretch. That's not, yes, that's exactly what it is, okay? But what does the storyteller think about what Solomon is becoming? Because remember, he's still offering his sacrifices in the temple, right? So there is a veneer of religion and piety, correct? He is still publicly a follower of Yahweh, and yet what is he doing? Now, notice what the storyteller says. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. Now, in Jewish consciousness, the number 666 was always seen as a symbol of opposition to the divine because seven was sort of the divine number of perfection. So 666 was a loaded number. It still is to this day, by the way. By the way, I was uh, in England and I saw a dude with a t-shirt that said 665, the neighbor of the beast. (laughs) Okay, so the storyteller literally says the, um, the weight of the gold, by the way, 666 talents would be about 25 tons of gold, 25 tons of gold. It's as if the storyteller is going, just in case you're missing this, Solomon, the last thing Solomon is doing here is maintaining injustice and righteousness for all his people. So what the storyteller does is drop down this Queen of Sheba story in among this reporting of the facts and details of who Solomon has become. And essentially says, it may look like a God-fearing leader, He may be going through the religious motions. And later the prophets would say things like, oh, by the way, God hates your feasts because you disregard the poor and you oppress those on the underside, but then you still go about your religious feasts and God just wants to throw up. That comes later when the prophets rise up and start speaking against this. But right now, what you have is Solomon building his kingdom, worshiping his God publicly, and yet he has become an oppressor. He has forgotten the story of his people. He is praising the God who rescues people from oppression in the temple he built with slave labor, and he's bowing down to the God of violence, 
weapons, and empire. That's what the storyteller wants you to know. So when the Queen of Sheba says, surely he's given you all this to maintain justice and righteousness, what the storyteller wants you to essentially see is this queen comes from outside of the scene. She enters into the Jewish story, and she's the one who understands the point because Solomon has lost his way. By the way, that's the whole thing about the son of David with Jesus. Is, is Jesus going to be a son of David or a son of Solomon? Because a son of Solomon would be an empire builder who brokers in weapons, who loses the plot. There's a new Pharaoh and his name is Solomon. By the way, my friend Don and I wrote a book about all this. It's called Jesus Wants to Save Christians, uh, where we just sort of take you through the scriptures and how all of this unfolds. Um, so now let's pull up just a little bit here the perspective of the Bible. The Bible was written by people who are generally part of small minorities under the rule of giant empires. So you just look politically at the unfolding of the Bible. First, it's the Egyptians who are, who are essentially have the Hebrews as slaves, and then the Persians and the Greeks and the Babylonians, and the, by the time of Jesus, it's the Romans. And these giant empires with their weapons and their chariots and their horses and their military soldiers marching in, these empires often made life miserable for the people they ruled. So uh, think about a first century family living in Israel, and think about its Sabbath, and you have a Jewish family walking to their local synagogue for the service, and you have a father and a mother and their children, and picture a Roman soldier who could stop the family at any moment and demand that the father leave his family and carry the soldier's pack for a mile. There was a rule that a soldier at any point could just say to, to a Jew, carry my pack for a mile. Can you imagine how humiliating this would have been? And so for much of the scriptures, the people who gave us the scriptures lived with this humiliating sense of powerlessness because they'd been conquered once again by a giant army. So you can see why the Bible is relentless in its unflinching critique of the abuse of power. It's a major theme of the Bible. What will you do with your wealth, power, weapons, and influence? Will you use what you have to care for the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant among you? Will you remember the story of your people? By the way, with the Ten Commandments, you know how there's that line that God keeps saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt? Why does that repeat over and over again? Because it's as if the, the storyteller is saying, don't ever forget that you were the oppressed, you were the slave, you were the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and you were rescued, you were blessed, you were shown favor, you were shown food, water, and shelter. And don't ever forget that that is why you've been given what you've been given, to extend that grace and blessing to others. Be careful that you don't forget you, your story and you end up oppressing, ignoring, or becoming indifferent to the suffering of the very kinds of people who you once were. 
So the reason why Solomon's story is told the way it is, is the storyteller is trying to show you that when you forget your story and when you become the very kind of oppressor that your people were once rescued from, your empire, your kingdom may erode from the inside. So, remember now that these stories were first brought together and edited into what we know as the Hebrew Scriptures in Babylon. So, what had happened? What happened after the Solomon thing? Well, eventually the kingdom splits apart. It erodes essentially from the inside. The prophets rise up and say, you have become corrupt. God is, you're going to, this whole thing's going to fall apart because you have built up your defense. You have become an arms dealer. You have forgotten the poor and it is making you vulnerable. And eventually the Babylonians come and conquer and destroy Israel and Jerusalem and then haul a remnant to Babylon. It's in Babylon that the people then begin to put together these stories, which we know to be the Hebrew scriptures. Now, why is this so significant? It's essentially like they're saying, you want to know why our kingdom fell apart? It rotted from the inside. We lost the plot. And so they told this Solomon story as a warning about the improper accumulation of weapons and the abuse of power and wealth. As the Queen of Sheba says, I know why you've been given this, to maintain justice and righteousness, mercy, compassion. So there is a giant warning here. If you continue to spend more and more and more and more on defense, if you become addicted to weapons, your empire will fade because vitality of a people the vitality of people is found in how they care for the least of these. Now, there's nothing wrong with defense. There's nothing wrong with protection. There's nothing wrong with safety. But right here in the scriptures, and you see it over and over and over again, there is a warning that resounds across the ages. Be careful that you don't spend so much time protecting and defending what you have accumulated spending all your energies on that, that you forget those on the underside. If you profit from violence, if you accumulate more weapons than you need, if you stockpile chariots and horses, if you make money on weapons and war and the destruction of others, that violence will turn back in on you and be your downfall. If you traffic in weapons, do not be surprised if another comes and conquers you with weapons. That is like a base note that comes up again and again and again and again. It's one of the dominant themes of the scriptures. And so, of course, when you have Jesus and the most powerful army the world has ever seen executes him, crucifies him, and he does not respond with violence. The central story at the heart of the cross is Jesus offering a new way to be in the world because the way of violence doesn't make the world better. And there is a myth of redemptive violence that if you just bring violence on your enemy, then you can bring peace. 
Jesus comes to call the whole lie out for what it is. They bomb us, so we bomb them, as if that will somehow make the situation right. There is no situation when violence somehow makes things right. It is the myth of redemptive violence. It is deep in the human bones, and it is wrong. It is a lie. It is anti the divine, and the writers bring it up again and again and again and again. Now, there's this great line in the Psalms, chapter 20, some trust in chariots, but we trust in God. Now, why is this passage so fascinating? Because who has the chariots? In the scriptures, who has the chariots? The oppressors have the chariots. Chariots are the tanks and planes of the ancient world. And so when the psalmist says, some trust in chariots, but we trust in God, this is somebody who's part of a small minority of people who have been conquered again by a foreign enemy, by a giant army that rolled in and made life miserable. And when you don't have the kind of firepower that your oppressor has, you have to draw on resources bigger and wider and deeper than firepowering guns. You are at the mercy of power beyond you. Some trust in chariots, but we trust in God. Can you see why so many people in the Western world and in America specifically miss some of the central themes in the Bible? Because we're the ones with the chariots. What if you were part of a massive global military superpower? Can you see there's a chance you would miss some of the central themes of the scriptures? Because when it warns against the accumulation of chariots, it's warning against you. When the psalmist writes, some trust in chariots, some trust in God, we're the ones with the chariots. Now, obviously, the world's a dangerous place. There's a proper role for defense and protection and safety. But that's not the larger point of the storyteller here and the prophets who quickly come. It's the thing, and here's the warning. It's the thing that happens in our communal heart when we become addicted to fear and paranoia. When a creeping fear sets in, an obsession with safety, weapons, and fortification to such an extent that it's taking way more than its proper place in our life together. And that's the thing here. It's not, well, we shouldn't have an army. No, 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 no. Obviously, the world is a terrifying place and we need some protection. It's what happens when our desire for safety goes way beyond normal healthy bonds, boundaries, and we begin spending so much and we begin sacrificing so much out of this fear that we begin to lose our way. And the warning of the storyteller here and the warning of the prophets and the warning of Jesus is that when you accumulate at the expense of your best energies being used to bless others, when you lose the story, which is whatever you've been given, you've been given to maintain justice and righteousness, it will eat away at the soul of your life together. It will turn you into something you don't want to be, something that isn't good for the world. You end up creating a world that you don't want to live in. 
you may in fact be part of the problem. Something about it isn't good for the world and it isn't good for you. You have not been given this blessing and abundance to pile your weapons even higher between the, behind the high walls of your fortress. You have been given this extraordinary wealth and power to maintain justice and righteousness. And the great promise of the prophets, the great promise of Jesus, the great promise throughout the scriptures is that at any point you can repent. You can own up to being part of a system that has lost its way. You can, in your fear, paranoia, and addiction to your own comfort and indifference, you can wake up, you can cry out, and you can say, there's got to be a better way here. And I actually wonder, I believe that that is at some level what is happening. I believe with this whole guns, politics, with the rhetoric, with the, you know what I'm talking about, it's the, it's the party, it's the holiday office gathering, it's the family Thanksgiving dinner, when things get so volatile and loaded and electric around politics and power and uh, Syria and guns and mass shootings, at some level we're having this discussion because in some way we've lost our way. In some way, even the discussion about immigration, something for many of you, it's not the actual policies or details, it's the energy behind it that seems deeply wrong. It's not honoring to our shared dignity as human beings. This goes back thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Some trust in chariots, but we trust in God. What you have been given, you have been given to help maintain justice and righteousness. So, so the irony in the Queen of Sheba story is she says, how happy you must be. And yet a couple verses earlier and a couple verses later, we learn that Solomon is building his kingdom on the back of slaves. And the one thing we know is that the one thing slaves aren't is happy. And it's the juxtaposition that creates the powerful alchemy of the story. How happy must these slaves be? No, no, no. And you don't get healthy until you call it out and you say something about this is really, really wrong. And you turn and you head in a new direction. And that is the question at the heart of every empire. Will this extraordinary power and wealth be used to simply stack the weapons and wealth even higher or to bless the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the immigrant among us? Will it be used to simply fortify our own comfort in, with indifference to the crying of those who need help, or will we give ourselves to maintaining justice and righteousness? That is the question for every empire, and it is the question for every one of us. Grace and peace, my friends. Part six, coming soon.